0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Trashy Divorces. Thank you for joining us today on another ride of marital misadventure on The Good Podcast about bad relationships. I'm Alicia. My name is Stacy, and we are glad to have you back or have you here for the first time, whichever. That's exactly right. Before we jump into your story, Stacy, I want to remind everybody once again, our live show a week away, a week and a day. Thursday, November 3rd. We are going to be broadcasting right here from Trashy Divorces headquarters, also into your living room, or kitchen, or bedroom, or bathroom, or wherever you are. Just it, see it's us.
1: really your business.
0: Yeah, your business where you watch it from. You can still get tickets for that. It's going to be a whole special, a little bit different than a regular Trashy Divorces
1: episode. Stacy, where can everybody get their tickets? You can get your tickets at moment.co slash Trashy Divorces, and I'll have a link in the show notes below. Fantastic.
0: So, Stacy, we're pulling one out of the... Musical catalog of the Beatles this week. You Mm -hmm. never give me your money. You've got maybe a lesser known story, but whoa, so trashy.
1: Yeah, this is a figure who is very well known in a lot of circles, just not the kind we travel in. This is hedge fund king Steve Cohen, who was married in the 80s and that wrapped up. And uh, this couple then spent the next quarter century in various forms of combat and litigation with each other, so happy times
0: you never give me your money it 's trashy. go, go, go
1: Alicia, in the run of this show, we have talked about plenty of divorces that have dragged on for ages. Sometimes it's because one or both spouses aren't really sure they're ready to end things. Think of the on-again, off-again breakup of St. Jennifer Garner and ex-husband Ben Affleck. Sure, sure. It seems like they spent a few years at the end knowing that things were not working, trying to get back on a good footing, and inevitably running up against their problems all over again. Some people stretch things out to try to gain leverage through infliction of emotional or financial pain on the... They're now opponent. We've seen spouse. that a few times, too. I would say, yeah, Harry and Linda MacLow back from probably season one or two. Oh, sure. Like, they probably did that to each other after their six decades of apparently loathing each other for the most part.
0: All that dirty, trashy art.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The former couple I've got for you today remained locked in a post-marital conflict, interpersonal as well as legal, for about a quarter of a century, because as near as I can tell, and possibly at different times... One or both of them just were not quite ready to quit each other. I'm sorry, did you say a quarter of a century? That's 25 years. This is a 25-year divorce battle? Holy cow. Let's just say the battle morphed over time. New themes emerged anyway. So the relationship, co-parenting in a massive high net worth situation, and the high net worth is really why this was so contentious. Became poisonously toxic as a result. And by golly, am I excited to share a story we could perhaps call the hedge fund king and current Mets owner versus his ex wifely vassal and plaintiff of decades. Let's meet our unhappily divorced subjects, Steve and Patricia Cohen. Oh, my. Today's story, by the way, borrows heavily from a New York Magazine piece from March of 2010 called Divorced, Never Separated by writer Steve Fishman. We will, of course, link to that in the receipt section at TrashyDivorces.com for this episode. But this piece really excels at sharing the increasingly diverging perspectives that these two were operating from as, you know, the years of their separation progressed. The
0: quarter century of Mm -hmm. years. Good Lord.
1: And how those perspectives, I think this is really relatable, though, how those perspectives led to an increasingly frustrated, bitter and hostile frame of mind that just left no room for you know, offering the benefit of the doubt or a sense that the other was acting in good faith. Their story begins in perhaps the most cinematic way imaginable. It was a summer evening on New York's Upper East Side, 1979. Oh, my. Patricia Fink, 26, was walking, perhaps home from her job at a publishing house, when the skies opened. She ducked into a bar to wait out the rain, Where a 22-year-old Steve Cohen in a suit that did not match his shoes made his approach. Hey there, little lady.
0: He did not say hey there, little lady. I'm improvising here. I have no idea what he said. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Look, possibly said little lady. (laughs) I wrote a script. I needed (laughs) words. Okay. Now go back. I like that part. Hey there, little lady. He may have said, I'm improvising here. I have no idea what he said beyond the fact that he was extremely excited to share that he was an all grown up graduate of the Wharton School and a bona fide Wall Street trader, which the cerebral Patricia, who typically dated writers, was not exactly impressed by. But he was very sweet and he was very eager for her approval. And six months later, they were walking down the aisle together, blissfully happy. The first of their two children arrived about a year later, probably early 1981. And if ever there was a peak marital exemplar of the Greed is Good decade, Steve and Patricia might be it. He worked at a firm called Gruntle and Company. There's a frontline documentary, PBS, um, from 2014 that talks about Steve at Gruntle and how that firm operated. Terms like Wild West and Eat What You Kill Ooh. are used to describe the corporate culture at Gruntle. Yikes. Gruntle traders were allowed to keep a big chunk of the profits that they generated, which was unusual in Wall Street trading houses. So this incentivized them to cut corners or just break the law outright. <laughs> oh, no. Insider trading was apparently or allegedly, I'm not sure... Uh, rampant there certainly there were there was speculation that it was rampant there and while all of these traders were chasing literal currency they were doing so by employing a different kind of currency information effectively the trader with the biggest list of chatty contacts was often going to end up being the best compensated so knowing everyone who might have relevant information about this or that company or in the works products or whether a patent was on track to win approval. All of these things were like the keys to the kingdom, and Steve was apparently very, very good at this.
0: This is all diabolical. I love it. This is how
1: insider trading happens, yeah. This paid off well for Patricia and their kids. When in the city, they lived in a 5,500-square-foot apartment on East End Avenue, which runs alongside the East River. I Uh do not know whether their apartment overlooked the river or not, but... Let's assume. It's high dollar real estate. Yes. Yes. They had a bunch of other homes as well. And when they traveled to them, they, of course, traveled first class. Keeping up appearances was obviously an important part of Steve's acquisition of wealth. And Patricia routinely, and with Steve's blessing, spent upwards of $50,000 a month on clothes and accessories. Wow. This was in the 1980s. Mm -hmm.
0: That's incredible.
1: She was also in charge of decorating their homes and the real estate transactions she was very uh, integral to in the relationship. This sounds a little like Aaron's spelling and candy
0: spelling, hmm. where, remember, she did all the gift baskets for right. his colleagues and decorated the homes and mm-hmm. handled so much of the business that I'm certain left Aaron and Steve, to your point, able to take over the world.
1: Yeah effectively yeah she was in charge of decorating their homes and this was one front where steve ended up being a little stingy uh she says that some of her best finds came from thrift stores because of steve's desire for some financial restraint on that front
0: i'm not knocking a thrift store i find. Love, that's i'm 100%. like percent this is great frugal too okay i
1: like it as his career progressed according to patricia Steve was also falling into a pattern of market-based volatility, which is to say that when the market had a down day, Steve fell with it, coming home depressed, impatient, and unhappy. Mm. It sounds like it turned into one of those classic situations where spouse A is saying, why do you have to work so hard? Why can't you relax, play with the kids, enjoy some family time? And spouse B is saying, I'm working my fingers to the bone for us, for you, for the kids, for our family. And neither one is hearing or understanding or appreciating what's going on in the mind of the other person. Relatable. Relatable. By 1988, Patricia made clear that she intended to divorce him. But one does not succeed on Wall Street without being incredibly competitive, and it was Steve who filed for divorce, arguing in his complaint that Patricia had abandoned him. Oh. This was before New York had no-fault divorce, by the way, so. He moved out. Why not? He was worth $17 or so at that point, and could go live in a fancy hotel or one of his other houses or, like, a freaking castle in Spain if he so chose, but actually moving out at the start of a divorce is a rookie mistake. It can give your spouse evidence that, for instance, you don't wish to retain a stake in the home you moved out of, or that you have abandoned your children, which can affect custody and support decisions. On his attorney's advice, he returned home, and it's not like Patricia could make him go. As he explained in an affidavit, I had every right to do so. I paid all the expenses. Mm. Nightmare. Can you
0: imagine being like, oh, free, you're out, and then he just comes back? Yep. Yeah, Patricia.
1: On his lawyer's advice. I'm so sorry, Patricia. Yeah, and then just lords it over you like, I got all the money, I'll do what I want. Okay. But Fishman, the writer, is at pains to make clear that however uncomfortable that they had become committed to now making each other, they were still really tight. They would talk on the phone whenever they were apart. They would occasionally still hook up, at least through the formal end of their divorce, which concluded two years later in 1990. And a funny thing happened to Steve's $17 million net worth in that 1988 to 1990 period as well. What's that? While his initial financial disclosures pegged him at $16.9 million net worth, he which became. Which is not insubstantial. I mean, that's, that's fairly substantial. That is more money than I will ever have in my life, pretty sure. <laughs> when uh, he, he, at some point in this, became embroiled in a bad real estate deal, I guess in 1988, which, according to updated disclosures, left him with just $8.2 million, oh, like mystery. almost a pauper. At the end of the divorce, Patricia walked with a million dollars in cash and the East End Avenue apartment, which was at the time valued at $3.8 million, meaning that under the new figures that Steve had provided the court, Patricia ended up getting better than 50% of his fortune and all was well. I mean, it it wasn't, but at least on paper and in a way that he could probably tell himself it was-ish.
0: But let me guess, Steve lies.
1: It's not what I say. It's what the Securities and Exchange Commission says. (laughs) There were also the children to think of. Won't anyone think of the children? Initially, Steve was paying $3,730 a month in child support and for upkeep of the apartment, I guess, plus paying for private school, camps, medical expenses, etc. For the year of 1990, Fishman says that he spent $125,619 on Patricia and their two children. Okay. Steve was also encouraging Patricia to start working again, and he suggested that she go into general contracting because she had been so instrumental in all of their real estate deals. Unfortunately, though, there was one home that she was unable to sell, the $3.8 million apartment that was part of the settlement. The housing market cratered right around the same time the stock market cratered at the end of the 80s. Yeah. And just a year after the divorce became final, Patricia was back in court demanding more money. Her lawyers acknowledged that she had not yet adjusted to her new, no longer married to a millionaire lifestyle, and that the $80,000 Bergdorf bill she had run up was not great, but that it wouldn't be an awesome look if Steve's kids were suddenly homeless, however profligate their mother's spending may have been. Their children were a seemingly constant source of or amplifier of conflict between the two. Patricia criticized Steve for visiting the fitness center in his building during his custodial time, leaving the kids, then 10 and 5, to watch TV in his apartment for an hour or so. Not a huge deal in the scheme of things. Steve criticized Patricia for airing their dirty laundry in front of the kids, noting that their 10-year-old daughter complained that Steve wasn't giving her mother enough money.
0: (laughs) This is not what you want your Mm 10-year-old saying to you.
1: In 1992, his $3,730 a month payment went to (sighs) $10,400 through a new settlement they negotiated.
0: Triple.
1: Yeah. Steve also remarried in 1992 to what must be a very understanding woman named Alexandra Garcia, with whom he would have, I I guess, four more children. I think she had one. So five kids that they've raised together. Seven kids total they are still married today 30 years later so congrats on that he also finally broke away from gruntle and co and launched sac capital advisors his initials uh steve a cohen reportedly with 10 million of his own money and 10 million or 15 i've seen it 20 and 25 for startup money anyway from outside investors sac became a legend in the hedge fund world it had the highest return of any fund It also charged the highest fees, including retaining 50% of all profits.
0: Whoa!
1: Industry standard was 20 or 30. Yeah. Still, it reliably paid a 30% return to investors. Like, it just... Its performance was just unbelievable. At its peak, SAC was managing $14 billion in equity. Although, ultimately, the endeavor was not to be as successful as his second marriage... SAC pleaded guilty to insider trading in 2013 and paid $1.8 billion in penalties. Holy cats. Steve, unlike some of the senior executives that he employed, avoided indictment in the mess and therefore prison. But the Securities and Exchange Commission did bring a civil suit for the insider trading scheme that he was alleged to have been part of. He settled this in 2016 in an agreement that barred him from managing other people's money for two years among other things.
0: Oh, big penalty.
1: But that is all way in the future. And there's a lot of post-marital mayhem left to document. So we're going to take a break here. And when we come back, we're going to document the atrocities that stem from simmering resentments and way, way too much money. See you on the flip. Sibling fights are unavoidable, but what if every fight you had was under a microscope on a global scale? It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle, or was it something that started much earlier?
0: Follow Dis on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hey, Trash Pandas. When you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and... I don't know, exposing official corruption? All in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns, Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia. It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project, an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. I'm Howard Dory.
0: And I'm Just Dory. And we host Plotting Through the Presidents,
1: an irreverent history podcast that explores lesser known stories of the founders and their families.
0: Things your teachers did not tell you.
1: Because they might have been fired. <laughs> we combine deeply researched narrative dives with fresh, fun, marital banter.
0: Well, you're the one diving. I'm not privy to the stories ahead of time, so I'm like the flabbergasted audience surrogate.
1: So flabbergasted.
0: We cover more than just presidents, we talk about some incredible women like. Like Anne Royale and Phyllis Wheatley,
1: and other founders like Benjamin Rush and Gouverneur Morris, two fascinating men, neither of whom I'd trust with a sharp object. No, we've got everything: myths, mysteries, scandals, spiritualism, romance, rivalries, murder, creepy toy possums. Uh, What now? Oh, just you wait. Ooh! Check out Plotting Through the Presidents everywhere you get your podcast, and at plodpod.com.
0: and hit that follow button and let us flabbergast you. All right, Stacy. way too much money. What happens with these not love birds anymore? Not love birds
1: anymore. All right, in 1996, kids are getting a little older. That child support that had been 3730 and went to 10-whatever, suddenly that balloons to $16,000 a month. What? And then $18,000 a month (sighs) from 2000 to 2003. Wow. The next year, with the youngest finally off to college, He cut that in half, but continued to pay Patricia $9,000 a month. I'm not sure how that became categorized once the kids were out of the house, because Steve was also paying for the kids' college, but child support is not taxed in the United States. So $18,000 times 12 months is $216,000 tax-free dollars that Patricia was receiving. And for the years 2000 to 2003, that's... Roughly a million. It's just under a million dollars. Yeah, it's not, not a bad payday. Free money that Uncle Sam could not touch. And yet, Patricia's resentment continued to fester. And Steve's frustration with her lack of appreciation for his generosity continued to gnaw at him. Here's just one example. In the year 2000, Patricia and the kids were living in a very modest apartment. Their son's bedroom was a converted dining room. And Steve decided that he should step in and do right by his kids. He purchased a 2,340 square foot apartment, three bedrooms on Central Park West for them, and priced it at $1,500 a month in perpetuity. Like Patricia would just assume this permanent lease. Presumably thinking that Patricia could then feel secure in having forever housing even after the kids were off doing their own thing rent stabilization i
0: love it i mean in west side central park west fifteen hundred dollars a month for Mm. a (laughs) three-bedroom patricia
1: take the rooms and
0: run sister
1: right and by keeping the title in his own name steve could also ensure that patricia wouldn't mortgage or sell the property and once again end up in dire financial circumstances i mean you know everybody's getting older gotta think about the future This paternalism pissed Patricia off every bit as much as you probably expect by now. Is your son sleeping in a dining room? Come on, Patricia. To her, this was just the latest in a long line of slights and provocations, a demeaning exercise in ownership of her person, and one she hoped her children would resist as they moved out and into the world. In this, she apparently managed some sort of pyrrhic when because when Steve offered their adult daughter an apartment that you know again he would retain the title to she refused apparently again this is from Fishman's piece back in 2010 things are probably quite different now but at the time Fishman includes an anecdote that the daughter doesn't even tell people that she's related to a billionaire cuz like she has no money to show for it it's not like she's out there anyway Steve does give his children money though don't sure yeah okay just a word, though, here in 2022, how bonkers it feels to convey the, I'm waving my fingers in air quotes here, the ordeal, as it were, of being offered a lifetime lease on a 2,300 square foot Central Park West apartment for $1,500 a month. Yeah, it's incredible. These days, comparable digs look like they start around $6,000 a month, and you can very easily find listings for 10000 15000 16000 for a a 3-2 on Central Park Yeah, you take that deal in perpetuity. Steve and his second wife, Alex, by the way, had decamped to Greenwich, Connecticut in 1998, where they purchased an 18-acre compound featuring a 35,000-square-foot main house, a full-size indoor basketball court, a glass-enclosed pool, a 6,700-square-foot ice-skating rink, a two-hole golf course, and over the years, an art collection that is lately estimated to be worth something like a billion dollars. Steve Cohn owns uh, Picasso's La Rev. Is oh, that the sure. The, the, yeah, the cursed, of course he does. He owns La Rev. Yeah. He bought it from Steve Wynn after yeah. Steve Wynn put his elbow
0: through it. Okay, so I maybe understand Patricia's POV here. I want you to think back to the very first episode of The Good Place. And here's Eleanor showing up, looking at her little, ugly, tiny boop. It's a little bit of a cottage and then looking at Tahani's home. Oh,
1: that's very good.
0: Right. So I can imagine, Patricia, like, you're living in a, what, 18-acre, 35,000 estate home, and you're expecting me to sit on this 2,300-square-foot property and think I have a deal. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying this is the visual that flashed into my brain to compare maybe where Patricia's coming from.
1: It, I'm I'm sure that there were many, many things... Playing into this. Meanwhile, SAC Capital, Steve's company, had emerged as a powerhouse in the hedgy world, the hedge fund world. And I'm sorry, but when you're talking about high finance that is this high, legal disputes are simply inevitable. In the early 2000s, a Canadian pharmaceutical company called BioVail had sued a collection of American hedge funds, including SAC, that it argued had illegally conspired to drive down its stock price. Steve, notably, was betting on the stock to take a downturn. In 2006, the TV show 60 Minutes aired a segment about this lawsuit, and as Patricia watched, she was suddenly overwhelmed with a personal realization that her ex-husband was capable of any sort of malfeasance in his chase for the next windfall, and 15 years of suspicions about the honesty of his financial statements during their divorce roared back into her brain. Dun-dun-dun! She began a one woman investigation of Steve, (laughs) his finances over the years, his legal woes, and in August of 2008, she uncovered a 1987 lawsuit styled Cohen v. Laurie. This was significant because it was with Brett Laurie that Steve had made his ill fated real estate investment during the period of their divorce that on paper sliced his fortune from nearly 17 million to about 8 million, which of course, also sliced the dollar amount that Patricia had been entitled to under New York's equitable distribution laws.
0: Patricia Cohen, girl detective. Yes.
1: This is amazing. She learned, for instance, that after the divorce was finalized, Steve had sued Brett to recoup seven and a half million dollars of the eight and Uh change that he allegedly had lost. And in her mind, and I, I believe I am not a lawyer, and I'm definitely not a New York divorce lawyer, in her mind, this money rightly belonged to the marital estate. It had been lost from the marital estate. Again, I'm not a lawyer, but I feel like she has a strong. No, it's a little shady. There's a strong, lot of shady argument that. there. Yeah, that because uh, Steve apparently didn't tell her that he had sued to recoup the money. He did not, in fact, recoup most of the money, but still. She was also struck that just a couple of years after his, you know, brush with poverty, $8 million. He's able to invest $15 million, mm-hmm. $20 million into a new venture. Yeah, he could, yeah he, that's
0: shady, he, man. he could front
1: $10 million of the 20 or $25 million startup money to launch SAC. None of it added up in Patricia's mind, or rather, it added up to a clear pattern of deception when it yeah. came to Steve's finances.
0: There's an abacus for that.
1: Deceptions intended to deprive her to her way of thinking of her rightful divorce settlement. In 2009, Patricia filed suit against Steve and his brother Donald. This is how the New York Times described the suit several years later. Ms. Cohen's lawsuit filed in 2009 accused her former husband of hiding millions of dollars in assets at the time of their divorce more than 20 years ago. She also claimed that his hedge fund, SAC Capital Advisors, was a, quote, racketeering scheme... (laughs) <laughs> unquote, that engaged in insider trading and other crimes. Oh. She originally sought $300 million in damages, but an amended complaint filed in 2010 seeks only about $10 million. The amended lawsuit also removes accusations that SAC committed various crimes.
0: Like racketeering.
1: He did a RICO! Okay. This reporting followed an appellate decision in 2013 that revived the case, which a U.S. district court had thrown out in 2011. Patricia's lawsuit then whittled down to a fight over whether Steve had concealed five and a half million dollars back in that 88, 90 period was eventually dismissed in 2016. But Patricia's allegations certainly piqued the interest of the Securities and Exchange Commission, which by then had harbored suspicions about Steve and SAC for years. Oh yeah. Years and years. Here's Emily Jane Fox at Vanity Fair in 2016 Describing where all of this inevitably led. Look at it one way, and all you see are the misfortunes billionaire hedge funder Steve Cohen has suffered. Earlier this year, he agreed to settle charges related to malfeasance during his time running SAC Capital, the firm that pleaded guilty to insider trading charges and paid a record-breaking $1.8 billion fine in 2013. The settlement bans Cohen from precisely the thing that made him the competitor-crushing, modern-art-collecting, mansion-accumulating man worth $12.7 billion he is today. Until 2018, he is only allowed to manage his own money, as he does at his so-called family office firm, Point seven two or point seventy two Capital. It's still around. I'm not sure how it's supposed to be said. Plus, there's that Manhattan apartment he just can't get rid of, a 9,000-square-foot Charles gwathme designed glass orb he initially listed for $115 million and has since slashed to $72 million. But flip the narrative, and Cohen is a man on a lucky streak. While he watched a handful of his underlings plead guilty to criminal charges and one land behind bars, his SEC settlement only takes him out of the hedge fund game for a couple of years. In the meantime... He's able to staff up .72, indirectly own another hedge fund, and prepare to sprint the moment the feds let him out of the gate. Yeah, it doesn't seem like a whole lot of consequences, Stevie Boy. Yeah, Emily Jane Fox continues, The luck continued this week when a judge threw out a years-long case against him related to his divorce from ex-wife Patricia. The two divorced in 1990, two years before Stephen created SAC Capital. In her lawsuit, filed in 2009, Patricia claimed that Stephen fraudulently understated the value of a real estate investment he made in the mid-80s in order to underplay his net worth, thus impacting the terms of her financial support agreed to in their divorce settlement. She attested that she was entitled to half of the $5.5 she accused him of hiding, plus interest. So that is what was ultimately foreclosed in 2016. Sure. Unlike her ex-husband, Patricia Cohen is not a public figure, and this is, as far as I can tell, where her legal conflict, if not her personal one, with Steve ended. She did not recoup the money she believes he fraudulently withheld, but her efforts seem to have become part of a broader SEC investigation that jailed one of his underlings, cost SAC $1.8 billion, and ultimately led to its demise as a legal entity. It no longer exists. And I do think her lawsuit played a role and making that happen, so. Better than revenge. I mean. Of course, rich guys are gonna rich, and Steve today runs his point seven two point seventy two hedge fund, and is the majority owner of the New York Mets baseball team. I think like a 97% stake owner. He's been building out a genuinely massive townhome eyesore in the West Village for a few years now. I showed you pictures of that. It's 30,000 square feet, all told. Which seems like just the right amount of space to be able to lose your keys and literally never find them again. Best of luck to you, Steve Cohen. Put some kind of tracker on everything that matters to you. You're not kidding. In trash can terms, it's probably best to use them to highlight the fact that Steve, along with his second wife, Alex, are ardent philanthropists and have given something like $715 million to various causes over the years, including programs for veterans, children, healthcare and more it's a broad portfolio of of good charitable giving fantastic it is a huge amount of money from our perspective but perhaps a smidge less impressive when viewed in light of his estimated net worth in the teens of billions and having been a billionaire now for i don't know a couple of decades you could step it up steve <laughs> i'm just saying <laughs> call mckinsey she'll tell uh, you she how will, to do it she will hook you up with some great causes that you can fund so that's steve cohen and the long-running malfeasance combat thing with patricia cohen who really should have taken that 1500 hundred dollar a month apartment that was a whole ride that was an incredibly
0: trashy story thank you for explaining it that's when, terrible
1: when hedges attack no he did i think he thinks he's been extremely Maligned. forthcoming yeah and that she has just never understood how, how diligently he has tried to care for her and their children. Like it's just, they got sideways and they never got right again. The things we do for love or money
0: and vengeance. Oh, and vengeance (laughs) and trash candy. Yep. Y'all thanks everybody for tuning in today. That was incredible. Stacy, we think y'all are incredible. Thanks for spending your time with us. Absolutely. We're going to be back on Sunday with a, All brand new Trashy Divorces for you. I got a really good one. One y'all have
1: wanted for quite a while. It's going to be pretty fun. Don't forget about our live show Thursday, November 3rd. And you can watch it after the fact as well. Tickets are at moment.co slash Trashy Divorces. We hope to see you there.
0: We really do. It's going to be a lot of fun. We hope to see you back on Sunday with us. Until then, friends,
1: keep those hands clean. Very clean. But keep your hearts trashy because that is where the trash goes.